The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Now we're going to get really, really practical. Now we're going to start studying a book that maybe you are unfamiliar with, or maybe uh, you have sort of lumped into the category of, oh, that's way too instructional and it's not grace-oriented enough. And that's the book of James. And I'm not going to tell you how many weeks we're going to be uh, in this, but we'll be together for the foreseeable future looking at James. And we're calling it uh, a field guide for the Christian life. Uh, Looking at a field guide for the Christian life, a field guide or field notes and field manual was, if you were a scientist and you went out into the field, you would take notes, uh, field notes on what you were observing. And you would look at those field notes. And then oftentimes what would happen, and then in military terms, they would take field notes and look, and they would create a field manual or a field guide. And a field guide was the operational and tactical way to complete the tasks that were at hand. James is a field guide. It is a field manual uh, for us. And we are going to be looking and seeing these very, very practical ways to live the Christian life. James has more uh, directives, more do this, don't do that, than than any other uh, sort of per capita. It's a smaller book. And so per the amount of verses that are in it, has more directives than any other book in the Bible. And there is oftentimes a problem that people have with James because it's so practical. Because it says, basically, in James chapter 2, James gets this incredibly bold statement where he says, you're not saved by grace, you're saved by your works. And many of you are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. And Martin Luther even went, whoa, wait a second. We're saved by grace. That's the entire reason I was willing to stand in 1517 uh, and to nail these theses upon the doors of Wittenberg uh, and to say, no, it's by grace that we've been saved. And then James, the brother of Jesus, writes this book and he says, what? It's by works that you've been saved? No, wait, how is this? And then later in James chapter 2, verse 6, he says, for faith without works is dead. And so Luther was even of the opinion We shouldn't include this book in the 66 books of the canon. But yet, interestingly, Luther regularly referred to James and taught from it. John Calvin, another reformer, said, There are challenges within the book of James, but there are such wonderfully practical things for the Christian life that it should be included in the canon, and it should be included in those 66 books that we have, and so it is. So we're going to look through it this week. And we're going to begin to learn and to grow on, to challenge ourselves on some things. And this morning is just going to be an introduction. This morning is going to be sort of a flyover, if you would. Uh, And to look and to begin to see the themes that we're going to address to maybe prepare you to prime the pump a little bit uh, in your world. But my my entering uh, introductory question is this. Where are you going? What is your manual. What are your field notes, your field manual guide for your life? What are you currently using? Because you're using something. You are falling back and you are looking at something to help guide you along the way. And what I've found in life is there are all kinds of field manuals available for you. There are tons of them around. If you travel and you go into an airport and you go into the bookshop in the airport, the how-to section is probably the largest section of all the areas other than probably the Harlequin Romance uh, area. 
And it's basically how to be a better leader, how to be a better business person, how to be a better father, how to be a better mother, how to be a better wife, how to be a better child, how to be a better whatever it is. Those are field guides. And those are guidebooks to help coach you along the way. And so we look and we see, and people are always asking the question. They come to me regularly and say, Bill, how do I know what to do here? Where do, I, where do I go with this? Do I know that this person is the right person to marry? I remember when I was considering marrying Lisa. And I asked a friend, I said, how do I know? And we had a very long, as I've told you, very long and drawn out uh, relationship. Uh, we uh, met on, uh, in December. We had our first date, January 1. We were engaged by the end of January. And so everything was sort of sped up. So at about week one, I was asking these huge questions. Oh, is this the girl that I'm supposed to marry? And this pastor, Sandy Wilson at Second Press Church, looked at me and said, well, Bill, why don't you take the Bible out and find Lisa's name in it for me? I said, well, her name's not in it. And he said, then maybe God has nothing to say about this, does he? He's like, well, he's got to have something to say. It's marriage, for goodness sake. I said, I've gone and I've read all these other things about how to pick the right spouse and even had a book that said, if you're not willing to date for a year, then you shouldn't read it. And so I took that book and threw it away. Uh, and I was like, it obviously doesn't work for me. And he said, well, Bill, what you need to look at is instead of looking for Lisa's name in the Bible, maybe you need to look at the principles of what God has for a biblical marriage. And that as a godly, as a Christian man, what's the type of woman you should marry? And then you should look and you should hold that against who Lisa is and who you understand Lisa to be. And if she meets those criteria, then you're free to marry her. And the other stuff is somewhat superfluous. It's like, oh. So he sent me back to a guidebook. He sent me back to a book and I said, okay, she's got to love the Lord. Yep, got that. She's got to have a passion for Christ. Like I have a passion for Christ. And I understand the unequally yoked part is mainly speaking about a Christian and a non-Christian. But I think there's times even in the Christian life where there's unequally yoked pairs. And I knew that I was heading into ministry. And I knew that I was going to be serving God. And I didn't know where I was going to be doing it. But I needed to have a wife who was going to be buying into that instead of sitting in the background going, well, why would you leave banking? And so I looked and went, okay, Lisa's going to go into ministry too, with or without me. Okay, that's good. And then so we, we kind of went through the field guide and we looked at each other and said, okay. And then it was kind of nice that God wrapped it up in this beautiful package with a wonderful smile and she could play the guitar and sing and all these other things that were secondary, but they just added to it. You may be asking in your life, how do I parent? How, how do I do this? Maybe you're asking in your life, how do I get through trials that come? Any of you in the last five years experienced any trials? Does the Bible have anything to say about your particular trial? Absolutely it does. James was writing to people who were experiencing trials. He was writing to people who were experiencing difficulties in their families. That who were being challenged all along the way. And what James was doing was saying, now come back and begin to live this way. If you say that you believe Christ... You then need to begin to live that way. That's what happens there in verse two, chapter 2, verse 26. I think in every book of the Bible you can find a key verse. You can kind of find a verse that sums everything up or on which everything hinges. And in my estimation, James chapter 2, verse 26 is the key verse of this letter. This letter was called and is considered a Catholic letter in that it's a more general letter. It's not one of Paul's letters. It was just a general letter. 
And in it, though, this was the key. He says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also, also faith apart from works is dead. So also faith apart from works is dead. And what James was really saying was this, folks, don't tell me about your faith. Don't give me your theology. Don't tell me and argue me into all of this stuff about what you believe and what you say and how religious you are and how righteous you are because of your actions and all of those things. Don't just tell me all about those things. I need to see it in your life. He's saying, I need to see in your life the rubber meeting the road. That if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and by the way, James was writing to Christians. He was writing to the church, and they were Jewish Christians. They were those who had come to faith, many of them probably in Jerusalem. James is the author, and he was the brother of Jesus. Obviously the half-brother of Jesus, for Joseph was James' father, where God the father was Jesus' father. And so he's the half-brother of Jesus, and he was the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Well, we know in Acts 8.1 that persecution came to the church in Jerusalem. And it says that the Jews, the Jewish Christians, the first converts, were dispersed out across Asia Minor. That they were run out of Jerusalem, that they were being persecuted. You hear about this often uh, in the Middle East today for Muslim families. Uh, That if someone comes to faith and they leave the Muslim faith, it doesn't matter if they're coming to Christianity or just leaving the Muslim faith, their families persecute them and run them out, and that they often have to leave. That's what was happening here in Jerusalem. And so these Christians were now being dispersed all around uh, Asia Minor. And so James, as the pastor and the leader of the church, and as a good Jewish Christian himself, one who had come to faith as a Jew, believing in the fulfillment of the Messiah, his brother Jesus, his Savior and his God, he wrote this letter to them. And he said, folks, you've got to live out your faith. You can't be so afraid of the persecution that's around you. You can't be so afraid about what people are going to think about you. You can't be so caught in all of this that you're willing to fall back into Judaism. You can't fall back into religion. You can't fall back into circumcision or of obeying the Torah, uh, doing all that. You can't fall back into that. You've still got to stand upon the principles that are by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that you've been saved, not by works of the law, that no man was saved by works of the law, but all saved through Christ himself. He said you can't fall away from that, and so you're going to get persecuted by the other Jews who are in your areas. And there were Jews all over the ancient Near East. He said you're probably also going to get persecuted by the Roman government, and people in those areas. So these folks were getting it coming and going. He said, and you've got to live it out boldly. Does that sound familiar in our day and age? And and I don't want to highlight the persecution of the Christian church in America because I believe that would be doing damage uh, to what's really happening around the world where there are some brothers and sisters of ours who are very truly being persecuted. But we experience difficulties in walking out our faith. Uh, we experienced some of these things. I mean, it's been highlighted in the, uh, the paper recently about Dabo Sweeney and how Clemson and the football program at Clemson is coming under scrutiny uh, because Dabo is a believer and he's trying to do things there. Uh, you go and you now see, it's interestingly enough, uh, a camaraderie happening between Columbia and Clemson. Isn't that interesting? Have you been reading about that? That now on the front page that one of the quarterbacks at South Carolina has stood up and said, my faith is more important than my football. And that players on the South Carolina team are coming up and saying, we study the Bible, we love Jesus, that we're standing firm. And it's interesting, these two arch rivals 
are finding themselves standing together saying, we though believe in the same God and the same Savior, Jesus Christ. And so, being one who could care less about either university, because I'm going to be paying tuition to both, and I have to remain divided, it's awesome to see that. But it's hard to stand for your faith, isn't it? I was talking to somebody recently who was at a public school game, and he was uh, there and prayed an invocation and was told by the administration of the school, you can't pray at these games anymore. This is a public school. And it's difficult at times to live out our faith. Teenagers are constantly and regularly being challenged to live out their faith. How many of you guys had kids go to prom this year? A few of you? Anybody? Okay, a couple of you. How many of you have, let's try this, let's expand the pool. How many of you have had a kid go to prom ever? There you go. Okay, I needed some more, a little momentum. I feed off of some momentum. So, you know what I found Friday to be? Incredibly stressful. Because what I was trying to figure out was what was going to be going on in the life of my son and his friends on that night when I wasn't going to be around him. Because I'm of the old adage uh, that nothing good happens after midnight. And I don't care if you go to Christian school or public school. The pressures are there for you to do things. And so I'm calling around to parents, and I'm calling Deb Copeland going, hey, what about this, and do you know this person? I'm new around here, and I'm calling other people and going, I don't know this family. Tell me about this family. And I called the mother of this family, and I said, hey, I'm Bill McCutcheon, and my son's evidently going to show up at your house later tonight, and I'd like to know what the heck's going on. And because there's this sort of thing that happens in the world that is, well, the kids are going to be kids, so we're just going to buy them and rent them a place, and we're going to provide the alcohol for them. We'd rather them do it there uh, than to do it someplace else. I said, but I don't want that. I'd, I'd like my son and, I, and, their, and his date and the other daughters and other people, I'd like them to be able to stand for Christ. And I'd like them to be different from the world and not have to concede that since everybody else is drinking and everybody else is having sex, that they have to do that. So I'd like to find some other parents who are willing to stand with me and, and not look like I've got 10 heads and 40 eyes and go, hey, here we go, we're trying to do this for our kids as well. But that's hard to find, and it's hard for our kids to find that. Public school, private school, home school, it's hard to find that for our kids. Maybe in your business places. Is it hard to be a Christian business person? Is it difficult? Sure it is. There's always ways to shave the edges or to maybe do this or or to maybe do that. Many of you have experienced some difficulty over the last... How many of you have experienced difficulty in the real estate market in the last 10 years? (laughs) Yeah. Several of you have. Has it been difficult to walk for Christ and put the principles that are in the field manual called the Bible to work as you walk through those difficulties? Absolutely it is. To walk through those things with integrity. Well, Paul, or James here is writing to us and saying, guys, it's going to be difficult for you. But I'm going to give you very practical things to deal with in the midst of this. And so here are the themes that we're going to look at. Here are the themes that we're going to look at and and that we're going to unpack and that we're going to say we believe that the Bible, that the Word of God, inspired by God, given by God, preserved for us over all of these thousand years, uh, illumined to us by His Holy Spirit, ministering through His Word to our hearts. And we're going to look at these five things over the course of the next couple of months together, okay? One is wisdom. How many of you would like to learn how to have more wisdom in your life? Anybody? Well, the Bible says if you come and you look in the Scriptures, you will find wisdom. You will come there and you can search the world over and you can find all kinds of pundits out there in the world who are going to tell you how to have wisdom. But the scripture says if you want godly wisdom, 
If you want wisdom that comes from the one who created all things and has orchestrated all things and brought all things together and knows how to harmoniously have everything working together, then it would, be, it would behoove us to come and go, oh, okay, God, I'll come and look in here for wisdom. You realize there's an entire section of the Bible called the wisdom literature? You may not have even known that. It's right there. And the scripture says, if you seek wisdom, God will give it to you. And so we're going to look together for wisdom. And we're going to find out some of the practical ways that we can gain wisdom and apply wisdom in our lives. Another area that uh, we're going to deal with, another theme, is how many of you have a difficulty with your speech? With your tongue? Anybody? And if you think you don't, here's, what, here's an exercise for you to do. And I'd love for you just to try it for a day. I was challenged to try it for a week. I failed within the first few hours. And here it is. It's called the tongue exercise. And here's what the tongue exercise is. You cannot complain. You cannot criticize. You cannot negatively critique. You cannot speak ill. You cannot curse. Take the Lord's name. and You just keep filling it out. Any of it. You can't tell a lie. You can't tell a white lie. By the way, there's no difference in those two, but I'll just help you. Some of you think there is. Um, that you cannot speak with hyperbole, meaning you can't make it sound better than it is. If it was a four foot putt, it was a four foot putt. <laughs> if it was a bogey, it was a bogey, not a birdie. If you grounded your club, take the penalty. I was with a guy, we were playing golf, and he grounded his club in a sand trap, and I said, you can't do that. He goes, yeah, I don't like that rule. <laughs> okay. But with the tongue exercise, if you're having difficulty with your tongue and your speech, and you'd like to deal with that, James says, I have some words of wisdom for you. I can help you in that. We can study that together. If you experience trials and difficulties, I'm looking around the room today and I know some of your stories and I know what you're experiencing. If you're experiencing those trials and those difficulties, James says, God's word has something for you and he can encourage you and he can help you navigate through that. He can give you those field notes. He can give you a manual of how to operate within the context of trials and difficulty. James used the word fiery trials. He used the words that meant these are trials that are consuming. These are trials that, that look to destroy you. And some of you know exactly what James is talking about. And he says, come and we're going to talk about that. We've talked a little bit in recent months about wealth and about money James says, if you are having issues and you are concerned about the difference between the wealthy and the non-wealthy and the partiality that seems to be shown to some and not to others, uh, if you're concerned with racism, if you're concerned uh, with bigotry, if you're concerned with things that are going on uh, around us socially and social standards and how those are constructed and concocted, uh, if those are difficult for you or you're even struggling with some of those things, then there's some things you can learn here. For James was saying, why is it 
that if the honorable mayor of the town or if a person of great wealth would come into the town, you would give that person a seat of honor. But if a drug addict or a whore walked in or somebody who you knew to be homeless, they wouldn't be invited to sit in the front seat. You think what that exposes in you is a deeply held uh, brokenness that somehow uh, is showing itself out. And he said, for the Christian, that can't be the case. I know someone who uh, grew up in the South and had deeply held racism issues. They loved the Lord, but those were just there. There were these social constructs which were so difficult for them uh, in their lives. And in God's providence, and in his great love for this family, he brought a child of color into their home. And now all of a sudden, the family was going to have to love a child of color and of a different race. And it just broke them in such a beautiful way that they finally saw the beauty of the gospel had nothing to do with race and everything to do with individuals that broke those lines. And it's such a picture of God's work in their lives. Because they would come and they would talk to me. And I'd say, what do you, how do we do this? And I was like, well, it seems to say here are some pretty good things about that. And they came and they were challenged on these things. And so if we're wrestling with partiality and wealth and the haves and the have-nots and even those things of race, we're going to talk about those over the next few weeks. And then finally, uh, the final thing I've already sort of introduced to you, it's the idea of works. It's the idea of we can't just say we believe these things. We actually have to be going and doing them. We can't say uh, that we love this community, that we love Hilton Head and we love Bluffton and we want to have an impact in Hilton Head and we want to have an impact in Bluffton. Those sound great and they look good on the walls and and they've helped and and all of these things and that's exciting and that's great. But you know what we need to do? We've got to go have an impact. And you know how you have an impact on someone's life? You go get involved with their life. To my shame... driving out of town on Wednesday, had to get up to Myrtle Beach for a meeting, uh, needed to be there, was running late already, uh, was rushing to get there, swung in to Chick-fil-A uh, by Lowe's, uh, and as I was pulling in, there's a family sitting there with a man with a sign uh, that said, uh, hungry, out of work, need food for my family. Grabbed mine and headed on out. I couldn't be bothered at that moment uh, by this family. And as I drove up the road, I'd love to tell you that I turned around and went back. But I was so convicted, standing here today and going, how can we talk about wanting to have an impact in people's lives when we're not willing to be bothered, even in the least, to actually engage them? God is challenging us to not drive by. He's challenging us uh, Matthew and I were over at the school yesterday kicking the soccer ball around and a couple of boys from the Oaks came over and we were goofing off and we were playing with them and I thought, what an awesome thing if this church took a vested interest uh, in an under-resourced community on this island. Do you think it would have an impact on that? Do you think it would be uncomfortable for you to go into a place that's different from you? Would that be difficult for anybody? It's okay if it is. It, it is for me. But I was reminded, I was telling Matt, I met his mom while I was ministering in a housing project in downtown uh, Charlotte. 
and that I was there ministering to those kids and that I had guns pulled on me and I had people challenge me uh, and it was a scary place. But we saw lives impacted because some kids, some white kids from the suburbs of Charlotte decided to go in and tutor and engage the lives of the kids who were there in that community. They were putting their faith to work. And that's what we're going to be challenging one another on. And so this may be uncomfortable for some of you. I'm going to share some personal stories with you throughout the course of this. And I know that makes some of you very uncomfortable because you want to think that I got it all. I don't have it all down pat, folks. I'm walking this journey with you. I may be a step or two ahead of some of you and a few steps behind others of you. But we're going to walk through this journey together. And we're going to see and be challenged by what James is saying. Your faith if it has no outward sign of working in your life, it isn't affecting your life, if you could not be convicted at a court of trial against you for your Christian convictions other than what you say, then you need to be challenged. And so we're going to challenge one another in that. Does that sound like something good to do this summer? Because uh, I love where we're heading. Matt, uh, Scott, and I were talking that in the Christian calendar, we're in a season in the Christian calendar called Eastertide. And Eastertide wraps up in 40 days-ish. About 35 days, we're just past Easter now. You know what the next season of life is in the, in the life of the church? Any of you good folks from Episcopal Catholic backgrounds know? What comes after Eastertide? It says the ordinary days. I love that language. So I want to make those ordinary days very productive for us. To come right out of Eastertide where we've seen the glory of Christ, the God who himself said, I'm going to enter into the mess that is this world and I'm going to enter in and I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to show you that my words have actions. I'm going to put flesh to my words. I'm going to incarnate the gospel in your midst. And what he's asking us to do now is the very same thing. Would you, the church of Jesus Christ, gathered here at Hilton Head Presbyterian Church, would you incarnate bring into flesh the gospel and move out from this campus and go and affect the world around you. And I'm going to give you a field guide to do it. I'm going to help you every step along the way. I'm not going to send you out as children without a father. I'm not going to send you out with people without a plan. But I'm going to go before you and do that. You guys up for the challenge? A few of you? All right, Jack and John and I'll go. The rest of you have a good time. Uh, we're going to be beat up and wounded, and we're going to come back to this thing going, man. And guess what happens when you try this, by the way? Do you think there's going to be two oppositions that come, and here's where we're going to end. Here are going to be the two equally damaging, but one more painful than the other. Where do you think the first opposition is going to come when the church actually begins to live out what it says? The world around us isn't going to like us, is it? Because all of a sudden, we're going to be sticking our nose into people's lives, and we're going to be going in places, and we're going to be challenging the systems, and we're going to be fighting for social justice, we're going to be fighting for marriages, we're going to be fighting for our kids' hearts on the campuses and in the homes. We're going to be going and doing those things, and we're going to be saying, this is because the field guide that I have, the manual that instructs me, says this is how we're supposed to live our life. And so the world around us isn't going to like that much. But you know who else isn't going to like it? Church people. Good old-fashioned southern church folk really don't like being challenged to do more than come to church. And so you're going to catch some arrows. And the arrows that come from the culture around you, you should be able to absorb because you realize uh, that you should expect those. It's the arrows that come from the back. It's the arrows that you get from the folks who you thought should be supporting you are going to be the difficult ones. And it usually comes like this. Hey, you know, I'm all excited for you, Anthony, getting fired up for the gospel, but slow down there, buddy. 
Hey, whoa, Jeff and Becky, this is all exciting and all, but you're going to Haiti? Is that really what you guys should be doing? And quit inviting me to go. Now I feel guilty that I'm not going. Quit inviting me to go. They've actually already experienced people who have lovingly sort of let them know that they feel guilty because Jeff and Becky are following God's call. Isn't that crazy? But that's the church, sadly enough. And so we're going to wrestle in the midst of those dynamics. And we're going to try to live this thing out for Jesus Christ. And if you're uh, someone who's investigating the faith and you're here today, welcome. This is going to be fun. Because what I hope that you gain and find in this is what true Christianity really looks like. And you're going to find a family wrestling together uh, and needing to repent and challenge one another on. But we're going to believe that Jesus Christ, who came to us, gave us the blueprint. He gave us the design. And now he gives us the power to carry out what he's called us to do in the world. Amen? Let's go on a fun journey this summer. Let's not let them be ordinary days. Let's let them be extraordinary days where we see God do immeasurably more than we ever could have asked or imagined. To Christ be the glory in all things. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a letter from the very brother of Christ that you have preserved for all of these years. And you've said, church, you need it. You need to see that you need to live out your faith boldly in a world that doesn't care about your faith, but desperately needs it. That the church needs to be convicted even of some of our own internally held sins. Some of our, we've allowed the world to invade and affect our life here in the body. And we need to recognize those and own them and repent of them and restore where they need to be restored. And Father, we need to see Christ preeminent in all things. That whether it leads to our death or to our long life, whether it leads to our persecution or our, our joy, that we, we see Christ and we're satisfied in Him. We praise You today and we thank You. And we look forward to holding this field guide and living out our faith, the Christian life, where You've laid us here. We praise You in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand and celebrate him.